Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. I'm glad you're here with me. I'm glad you're walking along. And today we're going to take a much longer walk. We're going to really get Dante underway. I'm not going to go back and go over the lines that we've already been over. I'm just going to start the journey where we left Dante. So here we go. Here's today's lines. After I rested my tired body a little, I continued my way along the deserted slope so that my firmer foot was always the lower one. Then, look out! Near the beginning of the climb, a leopard, light and very fast, covered with a spotted coat, refused to get out of my face and so blocked my way at every turn that again and again I had to go back. The time was early morning, and the sun was rising with those stars that shone with it when divine love first set in motion all those gorgeous things. Because of the hour of the day and the sweet season, I still held on to hope, despite the beast with the gaudy pelt. But then I was struck with fear at the sight of a lion that appeared. He looked as if he was coming right at me, his head held high with insane hunger so that the air seemed to tremble at him. What's more, a she-wolf, so emaciated that she seemed stricken with every kind of craving that had made many to live in wretchedness, threw such a heavy weight of terror over me, terror that overwhelmed me at the sight of her, that I lost all hope of getting up that hill. And like someone who eagerly counts his gains, but weeps and gets sad when the time comes for him to lose, so did that restless beast make me feel, coming against me little by little, driving me back to where the sun was silent. While I was falling down the slope toward a low spot, a figure presented itself before my eyes, someone who seemed barely perceptible in that long silence. When I saw him in that vast wilderness, I cried out to him, Miserere on me, no matter what you are, either shade or true man. And that's where we're going to stop with the appearance of this person on the slope. So last time I told you that Dante looked back. If you remember, he was climbing the mountain. He'd come out of the dark forest. He'd started up the climb of this mountain. And I said it was important to note that he hesitated first by looking back toward the dark wood where he had woken up in the middle of life. That he hesitated, looked back, and I said, but Keep in mind, there are going to be blocks that are going to come. But remember, the pilgrim hesitated first. And here are the blocks. This leopard, this lion, and this emaciated she-wolf. But before we get to all of that, let me just say something about this passage. This passage indicates and is going to start to show you the sheer complexity of this poem. We're going to talk a lot about what's in this passage, but it's going to start to show you the sheer complexity of the comedy that Dante wrote and how the thing is actually taken on almost a life of its own in all of the people trying to interpret it. But let's go back to the opening bit that I read. After I rested my tired body a little... I continued my way along the deserted slope so that my firmer foot was always the lower one. This is the first problem. What in the world does that mean? Now, if you think about it, when you're 
climbing a mountain, you're going to, of course, have one foot that is set in place and you're going to have another foot that is <laughs> moving, right? So you kind of dig one foot in and you hold it there and then you move the other foot until you can dig it in. This seems a little weirder because it seems like the feet aren't changing. It seems like there's a firm one and a not firm one. And also you'll note that it says, I continued my way along the deserted slope. Lots of people think that what's happening right here is there's a kind of lateral movement from the Pilgrim Dante, that he's moving laterally along the slope, not necessarily up or down, maybe, but there's a lot more perhaps going on here than at first meets the eye. This goes all the way back in the commentary. I mean, listen, the Divine Comedy is written in the early 1300s, so we have a good 700 years of commentary coming at us. There have been 700 years of people trying to figure out what all this means. And this passage actually starts with Dante's own son, Pietro. He's one of the first to comment on this passage and say, ah, remember St. Augustine. <laughs> Don't we all remember our St. Augustine? Augustine claimed that the soul walks on two feet. That is the understanding and its attachments, or we might say the intellect and all the things that make the intellect possible in this world or make the intellect drive forward in this world. Some people would say the number one attachment of the intellect is the will. So you could simplify this and say maybe one foot is the understanding and one foot is the will. And since Augustine claimed that the soul walks on two feet, it walks on the foot of the intellect and the foot of the will. So the well, so the foot of understanding and the foot of choice or your decisions. And since it walks on these two feet, that's kind of what's going on here. And, and, and Augustine said that the, that the one foot, the left foot of attachments, that is all the things attached to the intellect, including the will, always drags behind the right foot, which is the foot of understanding. Suffice it to say that for many, many centuries, these lines were interpreted through this Augustinian lens, through the lens of St. Augustine saying, well, what's happening here is that Dante's going like all people go. He's going with the firmer foot, that is um, the foot of understanding, on the hill, and the other foot, the will dragging behind. In other words, he's, uh, he's not making fast progress because his will is dragging behind uh, his firmer foot. Recently, commentators have started to change that definition and make a claim that Dante, the important thing, and I like this a lot, the important thing is that Dante's limping. That what the passage indicates is his gait is not right. His gait is off in some fundamental way. Now, some people and the originators of this interpretive scheme believe that the downward foot is pointed toward hell. You know, after all, that's where we're headed, hell, right? So the downward foot, Dante is still being directed toward hell. And I'm not sure I buy that. What I like is that the downward foot is actually in the direction of that savage wood that he woke up in, that he's being pulled. The firmer foot is always closer, as it were, to that dark wood where he woke up. So while he's on this slope, which may represent the slope of human achievement, one foot is always being dragged down toward the, um, the dark wood, the place where he woke up. One foot is always headed that way, and it's the firmer foot. The firmer foot is always the lower one. So there's something that's dragging Dante back to that wood.
Or I said maybe that it is the firmer foot that's being dragged down. Maybe it's just that it's firmer. Maybe the foot that is closest to the wood at the bottom is firmer than the other foot. And if so, then I love this interpretation. How can I say this? That the devil you know is better than the bliss you might have. Or you are more firmly directed toward that even which scares you rather than the potential for happiness. You know what this means, right? Have you ever been in a relationship like this where the devil you know is better than any possibility? Otherwise, have you ever been in a job like this? I certainly have. <laughs> Basically sums up my life in academia, that I was afraid to leave it because the devil I knew, and I had grown to hate being an academic, but the devil I knew was better than the risk of becoming a full-time writer. It was too much. And so that my firmer foot was in academia while my other foot my, my will, my want, my attachment, my desire, what I wanted was always somehow off beyond me. If that's the case here, and I like it a lot, the poem is far more human than we might have first imagined. So he's walking along with a limp. That's very important. And he's making maybe some kind of lateral progress on this hill. And then this leopard jumps out. <laughs> leopard light and fast covered with a spotted coat refused to get out of my face and so blocked my way at every turn that again and again i had to go back i'm going to skip over the next few lines and go that after the leopard jumps out the lion i was struck with fear at the sight of a lion that appeared he looked as if he was coming right at me his head held high with insane hunger so that the air seemed to tremble at him because obviously his roar because he's so loud so first a leopard with a gaudy pelt then we have this lion who's roaring and then finally what seems like the worst block of all the she-wolf, so emaciated that she seemed stricken with every kind of craving that had made many to live in wretchedness. Oh, just right there, right? Made many to live in wretchedness, cravings? So these aren't real animals. They represent something at Dante. This, this she-wolf threw such a heavy terror over me, terror that overwhelmed me at the very sight of her, that I lost all hope of getting up a hill and then slips back down. Let's stop and talk about these animals. The early commentators, all of those people early on who spoke about the poem, believed that these three animals represented the basic deadly sins, that is, lust, pride, and avarice. Many point to a passage in the first epistle of John, not the gospel of John, but the first epistle of John, uh, 2.16, that says, let me read you the passage, for all that is in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from this world. And so, because of passages like this one, uh, many commentators saw these animals as lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life, or maybe putting it another way, um, avarice or maybe envy, as well as lust, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes would be avarice or envy, and then the pride of this world and these big deadly sins. But which is which? 
Is the leopard lust with its gaudy pelt, or is the lion pride, and is the she-wolf, is that the lust of the eyes, or is that the leopard with its gaudy pelt? You see, the complexity here starts to weigh in on you because you can't actually figure out which of these is which. It's difficult to say. Later in the poem, we're going to find that Dante is going to give us a three-part division of sin. He's going to say that evil, sin, in Dante's world, sin, in my world, evil, that evil is divided up into three different categories. Incontinence, not, not depends diapers, but incompetence, incompetence, yes, well, maybe in the modern world, incompetence, but incontinence, incontinence, which is the inability to keep your desires in check. That's the first bit of evil. The second bit of evil is malice. That is a will to do heart, a will to harm someone. And finally, a kind of insane brutishness, an insane animal-like bestiality. And these are the three divisions of Dante would say sin, I'm going to say evil, that we're going to discover in the comedy. And a lot of people have said, oh, oh, well, that's got to be it, right? These beasts have got to represent um, incontinence, malice, and this insane bestiality, insane brutishness. Maybe, but again, which is which? Which represents which in this schema? Much later in the poem, we're also going to get a couple really unusual clues. Here's one. Much later in the poem, we're going to hear that Dante is wearing a belt. We're not going to learn about this until way on down the poem, but Dante's wearing a belt that he says he used to catch the beast with the painted pelt. So Dante's wearing a belt that he used to catch the leopard covered with a spotted coat, that beast with the gaudy pelt, as the passage says. He's got a belt on, and when did he actually catch this leopard? And what is this leopard that he has caught with his belt? You see, it's getting difficult. It's getting difficult to say what these beasts are. In fact, here's one for you. Why is the, sh the wolf feminized? Why is it a she-wolf? And why does this she-wolf plague Dante in such a specific way? I mean, the leopard's bad, the lion's bad, but the she-wolf seems particularly bad. It is the animal that causes him to lose all hope and fall back down the hill. And why is it feminized? Lately, a modern interpretation has arisen for these beasts, and you can see, right? You can just already see this complexity. Here's the modern interpretation that the leopard represents Florence. Why? Because Florence kept a leopard on display. Leopards had actually been in Italy, believe it or not, at one point, and Florence still had a leopard. Uh, and the lion, well, the lion is the symbol of the French crown. And if you remember, the French are trying desperately to influence politics in Tuscany at this point. They're trying to influence by backing the papacy. So Maybe the lion is a reference to the French crown. Insane with hunger, roaring. Is that what the French are doing? Maybe. And if that's the case, and if we have this political interpretation, then the she-wolf could easily be, oh, here we are, get ready for it, the papacy. After all, Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome, were suckled by a she-wolf. If this is the case... 
The papacy is emaciated, stricken with every kind of craving that has made many to live in wretchedness, and it is ultimately the papacy that sends the pilgrim falling back toward the dark wood. Well, maybe Dante is making that political claim. There's going to be a little bit of problem about this, and we're going to come to it next week. But maybe that's an interpretation. If that's the interpretation, then the very foundations of Dante's world, Florence, France, the papacy, the very political and civic foundations of his world keep him from climbing what is going to be called next in the next episode, Mount Joy, or the Mount that brings joy. Is that the truth? That these civic institutions stop him from climbing this mountain that brings so much joy to humans? <laughs> certainly true today, certainly true in this political climate, that political institutions stop us from climbing Mount Joy. No question about it. I realize this is saying a lot about allegory and interpretations, and you may be thinking, what in the world is going on here, and why is he spending so much time trying to figure out what these beasts are? And before we get to a final analysis, let me just say this to you. One, poetry is built on concision. It is built on a tight, tight concision of words. You you cut the extraneous material in order to craft uh, very specific details, and the details mean a lot. For example, if I was writing a poem, <laughs> let's say, about a seance, and let's say in my seance, a Victorian woman, well, is my full imagination here, my Victoria, a Victorian woman descended into my seance, and there she stood materialized in front of me. And I said to you, and she had a blue eye and a brown eye, and the brown eye was fixed on me, but the blue eye roamed around the room constantly. And that's all I said, all right? We would then kind of pull all kinds of symbolism out of that. If this was a Christian poem, we might say that the brown eye was sin and the blue eye was heaven and the sky and she's fixed me as a kind of sinner. Or we might say that the blue eye represents her desire to get out of here, back to the sky from which she came. Or that, I don't know, that I have some kind of Aryan fantasy about this Victorian woman that she won't locate me with her Aryan and blue eye. I don't know. There's a million ways we can put this, but that detail wouldn't be extraneous. And we could dance with that detail a long time in a poem. In a novel, if this happened in a novel, we might, we might not dance with it for so long because novels are not necessarily about concision. Novels are more about the expansion of the vision into a giant reality-based landscape most of the time. Not always, if you read your Murakami. Not always, but Often that. So, all right, poetic concision. That's our first bit. And that's why details like these, lion, leopard, she-wolf, are important. Also, because as I told you earlier in a previous episode, medievals read on two levels at once. <laughs> in some ways, they read smarter than we do or more smartly than we do. That is, they read on a natural or a physical level, a literal level, and they're also constantly reading on an allegorical level. It is just the tradition of medieval literary interpretation and readership. In fact, there are more levels even than this, but we're going to have to wait for St. Bonaventura and 
no problem of the levels of reading in medieval lit on down the road. But for now, let's just say that there's an allegorical reading and a literal reading in almost every text. So that there's one here shouldn't surprise us. And finally, Dante himself seems to gesture toward this symbolism. As I said already, that she-wolf is the one that has put so many to such misery, as it says in the poem. That's a gesture toward that universal voice, that gesture toward uh, midway in the journey of our life. I found myself in a dark wood, that hour. It's a gesture toward universalism, that this she-wolf has done a lot to a lot of people. And it's made a lot of people, or she's made a lot of people very miserable. So right there, Dante seems to be calling us to say, well, what is it then? It can't just be a, a, a female wolf that roams around. It's got to be something else because it's, it's gesturing toward a larger human problem. All of this leads us out into, well, for lack of a better word, interpretation. But maybe we should just look at it this way. There is a terror on the slope. It is identified as a bestial, raving presence. It is first a leopard, second a lion, third a she-wolf. It's scary. It's nightmarish. It pushes the pilgrim back down toward the wood. And notice that metaphor. And like someone who eagerly counts his gains but weeps and gets sad when the time comes for him to lose. Remember the first metaphor we encountered, the simile we encountered in the poem, was of somebody who has crossed turbulent waters, gets out, gets on shore, and looks back at the turbulent waters. And I connected that to shipwreck and all that. In this case, we have a simile about a gambler or somebody who, a banker, a miser, somebody who eagerly counts their gains and then weeps and gets sad when the time comes for him to lose. So did that restless beast, the she-wolf, make me feel. Is the she-wolf connected to money? Is the she-wolf connected to finances that I've gambled and this is my fate? Coming against me, as the poem says, little by little, driving me back to where the sun was silent. Oh, just listen to that. Remember, because we were told that the stars sing as they rise. And this is, of course, medieval cosmology, the music of the spheres. That is, the stars are on glass, or <laughs> glass is too simple to say, but let's say for now, glass spheres. And as they rotate, they hum, just like when you run your finger around a the rim of a crystal glass. And so we were told that the stars and the sun sang at the creation. So here they've gone silent in the dark wood. While I was falling down the slope toward a low spot, a figure presented itself before my eyes. Someone who seemed barely perceptible in that long silence. This is a little bit of a tricky passage to translate, and a lot of people would disagree with me. If you want to go get another translation by the Hollanders or others, you'll see other ways to translate this, these lines. It's difficult. What is this, this figure, and how does he exist? But let's just say for now, he is indistinct. Someone who seemed barely perceptible in that long silence. When I saw him in that vast wilderness, I cried out to him, Miserere on me. The word miserere is the first word 
Dante the Pilgrim speaks in the poem. And you will note that the first word he speaks is in Latin, not Italian. He says, miserere, as if from the mass, have mercy, miserere, and then in Italian, on me. So I've translated that part in English, on me. But that Latin word jumps out. The first word out of the pilgrim's mouth is a piece of the mass. It is in Latin, and it is said to this figure, miserere. It's a prayer. A prayer to whom? It should be a prayer to God. Who is he praying to here? Oh, we'll have to wait for the next episode of the podcast to find that out. Who he's praying to? Miserere on me, no matter what you are, either shade or true man. I want to come back to that those lines I skipped because I think they're really important. When the leopard appears, it you know refuses to get out of his face, blocks his way again and again. I had to go back, and then come these lines. The time was early morning. We knew that from last time because the sun was rising, and the sun was rising with those stars that shone with it when divine love first set in motion all those gorgeous things. This is this notion that the creator is the unmoved mover. And so the creator has started in motion the cosmos. And the sun is rising. Again, this is a geocentric universe in Dante's cosmos. The earth is the center of the universe. So the sun is rising with those stars that shone with it when divine love first set in motion all those things. And if you want to know when that was, we know. (laughs) Or at least Dante did. The date of creation is March 25th. It is the date of the new year in Dante's world. It is the date in which the world was created, and it is the date of the crucifixion. In fact, March 25th is the date of a lot of things. It's the date when when Abraham tries to sacrifice or is told to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's the date of the crucifixion. March 25th is a giant date. And this passage to me seems to say that we are at the same date as creation, that the sun is rising with all those stars that shone with it when divine love first set in motion all those gorgeous things, which means that the poem is strangely dated. I told you that the poem is set in the year 1300. It is. We'll see that later. It is set in the world the year 1300. However, I think the poem, Easter weekend, is March 25th. That seems logical from this passage. The journey begins at the same time that the creation of the world begins, at the same date that the crucifixion happens. Of course, it's Easter weekend, March 25th, 1300. Here's the problem. In 1300, March 25th wasn't Easter. Easter was in April in the year 1300. My contention is that Dante is making it up all along. That Dante is changing and feeling free to change the date of Easter in the year 1300. This is a poem in which the poet is crafting a narrative. And he's crafting it around this journey that he wants to start on the same day as the crucifixion, on the same day as the creation of the world. And, you know, too bad. It's not the same. Easter's not on the same weekend in 1300. But it's going to be as far as the comedy is concerned. That just tells us how absolutely controlled and crafted and created the comedy is. And I hope that in this episode of Walking with Dante, you saw some of the unbelievable complexity of the poem. Yes, 
we shouldn't lose sight of the literal narrative. A, man, a poor man wakes up in a dark wood. He's scared to death. He starts to figure out how to get out. He starts to climb a mountain. Dawn happens. Three terrible beasts rise up. They stop him, and he slips back down toward that very terrifying wood. And on his slip down, a figure appears out of nowhere, and he, oh gosh, here, prays to it. Miserere. One more time, the passage for this episode from the Inferno, Canto 1, lines 28 to 66, if you want to know, of Dante's comedy. After I rested my tired body a little, I continued my way along the deserted slope so that my firmer foot was always the lower one. Then look out! Near the beginning of the climb, a leopard, light and very fast, covered with a spotted coat, refused to get out of my face and so blocked my way at every turn that again and again... I had to go back. The time was early morning, and the sun was rising with those stars that shone with it when divine love first set in motion all those gorgeous things. Because of the hour of the day and the sweet season, I still held on to hope, despite the beast with the gaudy pelt. But then I was struck with fear at the sight of a lion that appeared. He looked as if he was coming right at me, his head held high with insane hunger so that the air seemed to tremble in him. What's more, a she-wolf, so emaciated that she seemed stricken with every kind of craving that had made many to live in wretchedness, threw such a heavy weight of terror over me, terror that overwhelmed me at the sight of her, that I lost all hope of getting up that hill. And like someone who eagerly counts his gains but weeps and gets sad when the time comes for him to lose, so did that restless beast make me feel coming against me little by little, driving me back to where the sun was silent. While I was falling down the slope toward a low spot, a figure presented itself before my eyes, someone who seemed barely perceptible in that long silence. When I saw him in that vast wilderness, I cried out to him, Miserere on me, no matter what you are, either shade or true man. If you want to know who that is, you're going to have to check in to the next episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I'd love it if you'd subscribe to the podcast. If you give it a rating on whatever platform you find it on, that really helps that rating. If you subscribe, you won't miss an episode. And we're just going to walk on with Dante. The next episode will finish off this first canto. And then I'm going to stop and talk to you a bit about the structure of the comedy of Dante's big poem before we start the second canto. But we are certainly underway, despite leopards and lions and she-wolves, oh my. We are certainly on our way to walk with Dante and I'd love to have you with me on the journey next time.